The following podcast was recorded in Austin, Texas at the American Institute of Architects Students Forum Gathering on December 29, 2017, in front of a live studio audience, where Social Design Insights hosts Eric Kessel and Karen Kuby speak with Coleman Coker of the Gulf Coast Design Lab and Sarah Curry of American Institute of Architects Students and the National Organization of Minority Architects. In terms of what brought the four of us here today, uh, that's a very interesting kind of confluence of events. These are our guests, Coleman and Sarah. I met Coleman about 10 years ago. Uh, we were both working on the recovery after Katrina in New Orleans. Uh, we met fairly serendipitously and kept in touch off and on. I met Sarah much more recently. But I, what I found was interesting is a, a sort of common thread of connection between the four of us and an interest in social justice and public interest design. Coleman Coker is a Loeb Fellow, a Rome Prize winner, uh, was named an emerging voice by the Architectural League of New York, is formerly a professor at uh, University of Arkansas, as well as Tulane University, currently teaches at UTA, uh, where he runs the Gulf Coast Design Lab, um, working on the Texas Gulf Coast with public interest design, design build projects. And he has been doing this for essentially the entire history of what could be considered the current public interest design movement, going back to the early days of the rural studio and working in the rural south and, and these sorts of things. Sarah is the baby of the bunch, not to point that out. <laughs> Sarah is currently fifth year senior, I got that right, at Auburn University, is currently working on a modification to a 20K house, is the South Quad director of AIAS, which most of you should know, I'm guessing, but uh, has also been extremely active in NOMA, as well as the Auburn African American Students Union, and seems to be the social activist that the three of us wish that we were when we were her age, basically. <laughs> and I've uh, been talking for far too long, but I thought it was remarkable when I got the chance to do this interview. I do interviews all the time because I have a weekly podcast, but this really struck me as one where it was an opportunity to talk across generations about the importance of public interest design, how it's taught. Is it in your school? Is it in your school enough? What needs to be done differently? And how do we advocate for both new forms of education and new forms of design and new forms of practice? So I'm going to turn it over to the panel. And for the rest of it, we will be in the middle of a live podcast. I am honored to be on the stage with both of you. I mean, as Eric described in your, your bios, I think you know, you're doing incredibly impressive work. Um, incredibly dedicated work, uh, Colin for for you know for decades, and and Sarah just starting out, just starting out, but but a much more impressive resume than than most forty-year-olds have, I think. So I'm curious, you know, with your talents, you could have done something a lot easier. You could have taken on easier work. You could have taken on likely more lucrative work. So how did you decide to do the sort of social justice or public interest related work? That you're, that you're working on? What, what makes you get up in the morning and want to work on that? I came to Auburn University um, because I was into architecture, but I didn't really quite know what that meant yet. I knew that I wanted to have a hands-on perspective about it. And so what first even led me to Google the Rural Studio was the fact that they allowed people to actually build what they designed, um, because I think I thought that that was an important part of the profession before I really knew what it was all about. Once I got to Auburn and had that up-close and personal look at what the Rural Studio was, I automatically fell in love with 
the public interest design as a concept. Um, and even though the Rural Studio does a great job of it, there are other schools that also are doing um, great things. There are firms and individuals who are doing great things. And uh, it really took me away into the way that I think architecture should be anyway. Um, so I almost wish it weren't so much of a niche and I wish that everyone were doing public interest design. But I'm young enough, I think, to believe that that's something we can get to because um, I haven't uh, lived in the world for very long yet. Yeah. Um, I don't know where do you begin with a question like that. <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to be an architect by the time I was 14 years old. I grew up in Memphis. Memphis was a segregated city. When I was young, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. So that social consciousness, uh, that need to try and do something in some way, hit early on. And then as life takes you in the strangest directions, um, I met Sam Mockby in uh, 1982, and we formed a, a firm, Mockby Coker Architects. And part of what we wanted to do while we were designing conventional projects was to help out in the rural South. So we began designing and building homes uh, for those who needed it. Then uh, Mockby went on and founded the Rural Studio. Um, I continued in practice for a number of years more, doing uh, small design-build projects when I was teaching part-time. And then uh, moving to Tulane, Katrina hit a couple of years after that, and we were building um, houses for recovery. And uh, it's been nonstop since that. Coming to uh, Texas, seeing a need on the Gulf Coast to work there, and build projects uh, with stakeholders that are interested in environmental education is what we're doing right now. So uh, not a direct path by any means, but uh, one that's gotten me here. I want to touch on something that you said, Sarah, something to the effect of you didn't understand why everybody wasn't actually practicing architecture that way. And I think that's, that's something that all four of us have felt at some point. From your vantage point as a student, do you see some kind of structural factors in the way that architectural education is organized that inhibit us moving to a future where you know all architecture could be considered public interest because it is and that you know a humanitarian spirit might infect every kind of thing that we do it's hard to say that I wish everyone would just sort of wake up one day and the light bulb will turn on and then we'll all get it. Um, I think it's a factor of realizing the agency that we have. Um, I don't know if all architects out there are in it because they realize that they can make a difference or that they even realize like the power that they're wielding in their hands with their pens, uh, with their degrees. So maybe that's something that we can work on as a profession, just first of all, making it known. But I think it also involves educating the public at large, the people who aren't architects, the people who are signing the commissions um, that are allowing us to do the work that we love to do and help all people because of it. I think that I don't know too much about, um, you know, the generations above me that have been working for a lot longer than I have at this point. But, and I can't even begin to guess what their motivations are, but uh, I'm sure that they're based on things that they've been through and the reality of life um, in that aspect. So maybe I'm just hopeful about it at this point. So am I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I'd love to hear more about, I know you're both engaged in these really phenomenal um, projects, and I'd love to, to dive in to hear more about it. I was really interested, Coleman, when I went to look up the Gulf Coast Design Lab, I saw that your website is poeticsofbuilding.com, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you could tell us 
more about that, more about your approach and, and what you're working on right now. Sure. Um, along with the design studio, I also teach a seminar each semester. It's Ethics and Poesis, Design in the Anthropocene. And so we're looking at environmental degradation. We're looking at an ethical position to take as a designer, but at the same time, how to develop a poesis out of that. And what I tell my students uh, about poesis is a built thing reveals that which is already there but not seen otherwise. It's not making fancy uh, poetry, it's revealing what is there. And the Gulf Coast is a great place for that in any context is. But so that that, that poesis comes out of the site, out of the work that we do with the stakeholder, whatever mission they have, we we try to attune ourselves to that because each semester, unlike the rural studio, uh, we have a new project and, mm -hmm. and it, it's different stakeholders. It might be the state park, might be nonprofits, that sort of thing. And so the, the poetic part comes in in making design that is both beautiful and necessary for uh, coastal people uh, regarding environmental education. And Sarah, I'm so curious. I, th I want to hear more about that because I know that you're one of four students that right on the 22nd um, iteration of the $20,000 house of the rural studio. And I understand that instead of uh, starting with a new client and doing a new project, you're actually retrofitting a previous project and building on research from previous semesters. So I'm I'm curious to hear a little bit more in detail about what that's like to dive in and not start from the beginning, but to actually be going through previous work. What's that been like to start out? Oh, and what is a snow roast? That's something I want to know. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I could talk I could talk about it for like the entirety of this podcast, yeah. um, so I'll keep it kind of brief. If you're familiar with the 20K project, they've done uh, 21 20K houses so far. What we're doing with the 22nd version is looking at a design that's been built before. That design, just like all the others, has been focused on keeping the mortgage low enough that uh, someone who's living in a low income or poverty level can afford. And so we've decided that we want to tackle making the utility bills from month to month also low and easy to afford because unfortunately something that we've noticed or something the studio has noticed is that uh, even though the house might be inexpensive and still look great, you might be using uh, the appliances or um, not making use of the other aspects of the house to an advantage that would keep your electricity and water um, and other bills low. So we're taking a design that's already been done, uh, we're building that, then we're going to rebuild it after doing a whole semester of research and uh, hands-on sort of data gathering um, so that when we rebuild this house, it'll be evidence-based and the windows and the envelope and uh, the placement of walls or interior walls and things like that are for the betterment of keeping the energy bills low from month to month. So uh, that's been a process. We just got started and uh, this December, earlier on in December, uh, we had our soup roast, but if you were in West Alabama at the time, it was snowing like it had ah. never uh, <laughs> snowed before, um, which was great because I don't get to see snow all that often. But the unfortunate part of it was that not a lot of people got to make it out to our soup roast uh, celebration. So we called it a snow roast and had ourselves a good time. <laughs> That's different than the pig roast that happens in the spring, right? Yes, pig roast happens in May. Okay, for... but those are both open to anybody, right? You can yes, come by. absolutely, right. and the community comes out, and so we get to present our projects and uh, get a lot of feedback from the experts that fly in to see us. Yeah, we'll see you there. Yeah, <laughs> come on down. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask a question because I, I, I also find this fascinating, you know, the idea of taking an existing design and iterating it in a way that is responsive to social concerns that you found within the community, right? And I think that a lot of public interest design historically, you know, you build somebody a house and they say there's the house and there's a complete ignorance or an avoidance of the consequences of that house on a particular community, whether it's utility bills or it's mortgages or it's maintenance or, or anything like that. So I'm really happy to hear that the rural studio is doing that. Do you think, and this is another very deep question, I'm sorry, but do you think that there's something in there about the future of design education, which heretofore has been based on, you know, the, the sort of individual artistic agency of the, of the student, right? They put you in studio and they say, create something and design something and this is your thing, rather than practicing in a way that says, look, here's a problem, here's some data, here's some solutions, let's take them all together and like, let's work with the community and actually create the next iteration of that thing. Do you think there's a potential there for rethinking how we teach? Absolutely. I think it all goes back to um, that agency and taking that initiative to sort of gather the data that you need to solve the problem, um, which is what we are as architects, problem solvers, sometimes problem creators, but uh, we always go back and get to try to fix things. Um, so yeah, I would say that there is an opportunity to start solving problems by gathering the data that you need to answer the question yourself. And then that way you can get to solving the problem faster, I think. And also the data that you end up gathering can be more specific for the people that you're trying to help the most, I'd say. Coleman, you have thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think um, in design schools, whether it's public interest design or not, we're asking the wrong question. We ask the question how, how to detail, how to make this beautiful how to meet the needs of the client, when we should be asking uh, the question why, a reflective question of, of how we're in the world and how a work of architecture has meaning beyond just it, its necessity of protection. And why, uh, I encourage my students to really look at why they want to be architects, why we want to build in a particular place, and reflect on that, take the slowness that it needs instead of the speed, which is what we do today in, in this culture, uh, slow down and, and, and think, think in a reflective way. We still teach in design school uh, in a Beaux-Arts tradition, right, where design or architects are at the top and everyone is below, when public interest design is coming from below in more of a network rather than, than a hierarchy. The value in that for students is immeasurable, and it could begin to change how practices work out there. It, it is changing how uh, smaller practices are still working. My hope is over the next generation it will change through that educational process even into the larger firms that are, that are not really interested in a public interest design approach now. And I'm curious, we were hearing about ways that the rural studio has evolved. I'd love to hear from you, Coleman, and your, you know, your brilliant work with the Gulf Coast Design Lab. What are some evolutions that you've made and I'd love to hear you know what you're working on next semester or now. When I came to Texas uh, the first thing I realized that people in Texas don't realize that there's a Gulf Coast here. Mm. <laughs> it, it's West Texas, it's, it's Houston, it's Dallas, but uh, Texas has a 320 mile coast. If you took the counties along the coastal edge it's six million people. That's larger than the population of Norway, population of Finland. 
I believe of New Zealand even. So that there's a substantial population down there that of course uh, just went through Harvey, uh, quite a few of them. Uh, it's a dynamic changing environment. It's different than uh, say here in Austin. Things are always shifting and changing based on in environmental conditions oftentimes. But also there's around the world there's more people moving to coastal edges than uh, any, any other uh, place on the planet. Populations are growing around the world on coastal edges. So while we're working in Texas, we're not only thinking about Texas with the students and how we teach, but they will all be affected one day by what's happening with climate change, how some of the largest cities, the megacities, of the 15 largest megacities on the planet, 11 of them are on, the, on coastal edges. They're going to be affected. Places like uh, Mumbai, places like Calcutta, Shanghai, that have poorer populations, uh, Vietnam, uh, the Delta areas there, there are millions of people that will be displaced, and those people are some of the poorest people in the world. Looking at how uh, that affects uh, design is an important aspect of how we work. So while we're on the Texas coast, it's looking and preparing students for their years ahead in, in practice and how public interest design approach might help them um, grapple with some of those issues. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Karen Kuby. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Coleman Coker and Sarah Curry, and now we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about Sarah and Coleman's current projects. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been listening in on a live podcast that was recorded by hosts Eric Kessel and Karen Kuby in December of 2017 at the AIAS Forum in Austin, Texas. There, they were joined by guests Sarah Curry and Coleman Coker and spoke about the future of public interest design education and where we go from there. Let's listen in. Do you feel like you, you, you deal with those uh, in your program uh, at Auburn, Sarah? I mean, I think that part of the, the mythos of the rural studio is this sort of hyper-localized, community-engaged sort of thing. And I think Coleman just artfully put it that, you know, you can be hyper-localized and it offers lessons and insights towards a broader, more dangerous world that your generation is going to be tackling. Do you feel like that comes through in your own education? I would say yes. I think, um, so I, you go... At Auburn, you go to Auburn University um, for like the first four years. You have the opportunity to go to the Rural Studio uh, for one semester during your third year and then for a whole year during your fifth year. But even during the years that I was on campus at Auburn, uh, it goes both ways. Education bleeds all the way through. So we were learning a lot about what the Rural Studio was doing and how that work can be translated into other areas to serve other groups of people with other needs the same way that we're learning it hands-on while we're out there in Hale County. So I would say that it's almost impossible to separate that in the curriculum that I've had so far. And I'm interested, you know, we're interviewing people who we think are doing incredibly promising work connecting education and public interest design. 
And we're also interested in what's next and what do we need to do to get there. So I'm curious, in your work, Coleman, with the Design Lab and yours, Sarah, I mean, you have these, these different positions of advocacy, right, with AIS and, and NOMA, et cetera. What are the most urgent problems that you're working on? How are you working to, to change education? Or what do you think are the most urgent sites of, of action? I guess as a student, I'm doing as much as I can. Um, yeah, and what kind of what kind of advocacy are you working I on? I guess I'm I'm trying to learn as much as I can, yeah. um, so I can be an accurate and a relevant advocate just myself. But I think I'm also trying to inspire in some small way, or tap on shoulders when I can, or um, just be as globally aware as I can, um, so that if someone does see me or listens to this podcast. They can see uh, the kind of agency that they can have um, and realize that everyone has the power to do what they want to do and hopefully what they want to do is architecture and public interest design. I don't know that much. Um, I, I have been in architecture school for five years, but architecture is the life of learning, um, so I'm excited to get into it. And some of the privileges or opportunities that I've had in the AIS I'm trying to give away to others because when you are in the AIS, you have all these incredible opportunities to meet all these people um, and listen to these amazing keynotes and get to meet people um, like Coleman Coker and things like that. So I think sharing the opportunities that I've been given with other people as much as I can, especially women and people of color. And what kind of stuff is Noma working on? Uh, similar things. Um, so with Noma, I've mainly been involved at the student level um, and not in their... Uh, upper, more, um, you know, actually licensed architecture level. Um, but from the student perspective, it seems like they're doing a lot to make sure that students feel supported and feel like there's a place for people of color and other minorities uh, in the profession of architecture. So I'd like to do what I can, but I feel like I'll, have, I'll be able to have more of an impact as I grow and become licensed and learn more. Colin, I mean, you were talking about resiliency and how that important that is. I'm, I'm curious what you think is most urgent and what you're advocating for. Well, in, in, as far as teaching uh, design, it's always, it's always evolving. It's always changing. And public interest design and the way we do it at UT Austin would be a bit different than, say, public interest design at Auburn or Yale, where there's a, a great design-build program there. Uh, each school has its own way of finding uh, their niche in public interest design in the local community. Because of that, it keeps a decentered approach to design. And I think that idea of, of decentralization, more of a network than a linear process, is what more and more studios, uh, whether they're public interest design or not, are beginning to grapple with a little more. They may not call themselves public interest design, but right now we have a number of studios at UT Austin that are working in the community, not on design-build problems, but hypothetical problems that are getting outside of the walls of academia. And I, I do believe we, we are moving towards that in, in small, small baby steps. And uh, to me, that's very hopeful. We'll change the way that this next generation of, of designers practice. What are the barriers that inhibit that moving more quickly? Attitude. Attitude of, um, of, uh, of those who teach, including me, finding the uh, desire to retool your approach a little bit. Look, it's hard work going out and, and finding stakeholders. 
you know, you, you're, you're not making up a hypothetical uh, problem. You're working uh, within the community, and um, you know it has it has uh, its advantages certainly for PID, but you can also bring a stakeholder into your studio and work with them there. Uh, I've seen that happen before. There are so many different approaches. Why is it not happening more? Is um, a difficult question to answer. I think it's attitude. I think it's um, uh, tradition of how. We now, who are professors, were taught a certain way, and it's the way we carry on in teaching. But there are, there are changes happening. There, there are more and more schools around the country that are PID is, is, um, is just the norm now. Ten years ago, even five years ago, you didn't find it that much. So it really is, is changing. Nicole Jocelyn, who's part of this, speaks here. Uh, she works uh, with students uh, at UT uh, on community design. She has a vested interest in that, being here locally with a nonprofit. So every professor has a different approach and a different set of tools to bring to, to those potential um, studios. And I'm, I'm very curious, you know, in my own education, especially at Berkeley, I was lucky to have teachers that were definitely, you know, interested in issues of social justice. I never did design build. And when I went to someone, an administrator at an unnamed, <laughs> an unnamed administrator at an unnamed school, um, asking about design build, uh, that person said, we're not going to do it. I mean, obviously, Coleman, you're talking about how hard it is. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it takes a ton more resources than a typical studio. And this particular administrator felt that the design quality might not be as high as something you do on paper in a studio. Um, with all the constraints. So what would you two say to that? You know, of, of the range of potential approaches to uh, social justice and public interest design in school, what's made both of you go toward design build uh, in particular? Maybe I'm a little bit spoiled because <laughs> the fact that the Rural Studio exists and is creating beautiful architecture with what they have and where they are just makes me feel like it's got to be possible in other places. Um, so I think that that's given me uh, hopefully a true sense of hope and uh, a real expectation of how you can do anything that you put your mind to with the things that are at hand, but hopefully uh, you yourself have the determination and the ethic and people around you who also want to make it happen. Um, not to say that nothing happens without you know uh, people staying up late and putting in long hours and working as hard as they can and the Rural Studio brings in a lot of expertise which is what makes part of what makes it so great. It's definitely a teamwork effort and I think that that definitely needs to be present. Yeah, I guess I couldn't speak to what I think is holding anyone back um, just because I'm very indoctrinated with what the Rural <laughs> Studio does and I think that if they can do it, it makes me feel like I can for better or for worse. <laughs> I want to know why, of all the ways that you might go about approaching issues of social justice through architecture and architecture education, why design build design in build. particular with all of its difficulties and constraints? Yeah, well, there's, there's two reasons. One is idiosyncratic and selfish. <laughs> I'll explain in a moment. Uh, the other is I think that um, a student, and I've heard this argument about the quality is not uh, the same in design build. How do they know that? How do they know that from a set of computer-produced images on the wall versus seeing a stakeholder use that project? How do you know? It's, a, it's an empty argument. 
plus students are learning uh, so much more about design process from the ground up in, a, in the simplest project. Uh, they go through a process that's very similar to what they'll be doing in the real, real world in an office. Everything that's done on a $50 million building is done on a $20,000 project, a 20K home. It's the same process you go through, uh, meeting the client, working with them through design, uh, getting their input on, on uh, how to improve it, uh, then producing it in documents. We have to have these uh, approved by building agencies. Building authorities, uh, uh, most of the time, have to go through that process, pricing that out, and then uh, sourcing the materials and building it. So uh, I think it's a great education for uh, students, maybe not for everyone. On the other hand, I'd ask why not. The personal reason is my dad was a house builder. I grew up uh, around building. I love building things. I, I, even though I'm not doing it now, I get the biggest kick out of watching students design and build something and work with the stakeholder and bring this thing to life as if it were my own practice. It, it's just very rewarding to see students uh, get turned on by this process. And uh, that, to me, is reward enough. That's awesome. <laughs> um, Sarah, I'm not going to let you go on the uh, the last question about things holding holding progress back, but maybe invert the question a little bit and ask, are the formal institutions of architecture, and I mean like AIA, NCARB, AIAS, doing enough to support the interest coming from students and the passion coming from professors to, to teach in this way, to teach this mode of practice? And if they're not doing enough, what more could they be doing? Well, that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, are we doing enough and what else can we do? I want to say, no, I don't think we're doing enough because if we, or if these institutions were, then I feel like things would be better. Not that I know all the holdbacks to uh, what's keeping us from moving into a 100% public interest design sort of um, state of mind in the terms of architecture. In terms of what we can do, I think. Students are doing all that we can to work with our institutions to either ask for what we want or um, make the most of what we have regarding uh, learning about public interest design or actually going out and doing it, whether you have a program like The Real Studio at your school or not. I hope that the AIA and NCARB and the ACSA can keep working together to incentivize uh, public interest design or the other aspects of public interest design that would make it easier for us as students to hear about it, to learn about it, whether that's maybe congratulating it more often than it is, or maybe that's uh, making it easier to earn AXP hours by doing those sorts of things. That's something that I would challenge them to look into. It's not always easy, I think, I don't know, in the sort of capitalist world that we live in, uh, you know, you have to get something for what you give, but public interest design isn't about that. It's about doing it for the greater good, and I hope that the institutions that be uh, can also pick up on that same mindset and do the same thing that architecture students hope to do. Could I add to that? Uh, I'm thinking of this more as a professional now, as an educator, having practiced for 30-plus years, and thinking of a, of a group like the AIA, Look, architecture is a business. No matter what you do, the first thing it is, is a business. And whether that's a wrong attitude of practitioners or not, they have to make a living at what they do. Now, AIA spends most of their time promoting that, promoting that in, in direct and indirect ways. Many practitioners, frankly, see public interest design a drain on their pocketbook. 
but it doesn't have to be. It, it can come back around in so many ways to benefit that firm and actually make money for it if you want to just be, as you say, capitalist and crass about it, by being an ethical part of that community. And I think that uh, profession misses that. I think the AIA misses a great opportunity to promote that idea of less than traditional one client, one architect approach that uh, has been the model that so many firms use and nothing comes in to interfere with that. So AIA is, is doing a very poor job of that right now, frankly, and they could do a much better job of, of incentivizing uh, practitioners to try new approaches, to get involved. It's very important, very important. I'm realizing as we're talking that I've had it easy. Some, you know, I teach uh, sort of typical studios sometimes, mm. and it's relatively simple as an educator. You, you have goals for what you want your students to learn, and that's it. And here in the projects you're working on, you have the goals for the students and also the goals for the people who will eventually use these, these structures. And I imagine those two might sometimes be in conflict. So how do you define success? How do you decide whether um, a project is, is good? We have a very active program because like the real studio, we're working in a, a relatively small area, you know, staying put, working in that location, you get to know the people, you get to know the stakeholders. It also gives us the opportunity to go back and talk to those stakeholders five, six, seven years after to see how the project is meeting its goals, what their uh, anticipation was in the beginning, if it's working, how it is material-wise, how it lasts. So following up, again, is a great education for students uh, in working through that. I think that is uh, a way of, of testing how it's successful. But what about the goals for the, the students? How do you know uh, from the point of view of the student whether it's been a successful semester? Students get electrified by this. <laughs> yeah. So many of them get electrified by it. They, they, they will let you know in their own way. I've had students come back years later and say it's the best studio I've ever had. And that means more than you can imagine to a teacher, more than you can imagine. To hear that from, from students after they've gotten out and practiced and come back and said, uh, maybe I didn't realize what then was going on, but now I do. That's a way of testing it. So the only way I have of testing it uh, in what the students do. And Sarah, if I come in and talk to you when this project is, is done, what kind of questions should I ask? You know, how can we figure out whether it's been worthwhile for you? What are you What are you looking for? Um, well, I guess. There are different stages of success, so in terms of the project, I guess the project itself will be a success if we do what we say what we're going to do, if we prove the hypothesis and do the things that we thought we could actually accomplish. Um, but then from the point of view of the students, I'd say it would be a success if we walk out of the real studio with the expertise to keep doing this and keep conducting architecture this way, and also if we walk out with the confidence uh, to do it again, which is sometimes the hardest part, especially after leaving school, I think. So I think that that would be considered a success for us, but then we'll also be considering it, it a success for the rural studio if they feel like this is something that they can successfully put money into again and uh, encourage other students to do. And then it's also a success for the community if by 
adding another facet to what makes the 20K something useful. They themselves can go out and live their best lives and accomplish their dreams and prove why architecture is so important to us humans at this scale. I think that triptych is, is profound, and I don't know if you meant to organize it in three ways, but to me they represent the, the kind of three pillars of Karen's question of success, like how do we define success? And we have to get away from this model of defining success as you know, another award on a wall or a mention on a magazine or glitzy rendering or something like that, and I think you really you, you captured the heart of it. I think we all look forward to working for you someday. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Karen QB. I'm producer Baruch Zeichner. From all of us at Social Design Insights, we'd like to thank our guests, Coleman Coker of the Gulf Coast Design Lab and Sarah Curry of American Institute of Architects Students. We appreciate their thoughts on the state of design education and their mutual vision of a bright future for public interest design. Next week, Karen and Eric are headed all the way to Paris to talk with Doina Petrescu, of Atelier Architecture Autogere about the co-production of the city and how her particular model of working and teaching involves students in a strong form of agency, pushing students to understand the role and indeed the responsibility that they have in shaping the city around them. We hope that you'll tune into that. You can find links to both Sarah's work and Coleman's on our website, socialdesigninsights.com. There you'll also find some further links about the work and history of both the AIAS and the Gulf Coast Design Lab. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to Eric at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. I'm sure he'll appreciate hearing from you. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Curry Stone Foundation, that's Curry Stone F-D-N, for all the latest news on social impact design. <laughs>